I think for me personally, I was always sort of caught up in my own head about not being good enough mm-hmm. uh, and feeling less than my classmates mm-hmm. in every class. Even, I mean, in retrospect, I shouldn't have felt that way and I should have just done my best. But I think I purposely sort of put myself down. Um, and then it was hard, right? Because there was definitely people who behaved as though you should not be there. And I think to that guy, remember that guy that used to share the office with us in Arasa from the Federalist Society? It was a Federalist Society, right? It was the Criminal Law Society. Oh, was he the Criminal Law? I could have sworn he was a Federalist. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Law and Order Me Some Tacos. This is Sandra Munoz. And today we have a very special guest. Her name is Monica Gizar, and Monica, Monica and I are colleagues, friends, I'm basically like family. So we were going to try really hard to be like, not totally serious during this podcast, but also not totally our normal selves either, because <laughs> that would, we would go into another realm. So help me welcome Monica Gizar. Hi, Monica. Hi. How are you? I'm good. I'm so excited to be here. All right, so Monica. Yes. Tell us first, what do you do for a living? What is your job? I am a labor lawyer. I work for the Service Employees International Union. I'm an associate general counsel there. And I work to improve the lives of workers. So you represent, uh, you, you work for a union. Yes. The SEIU. Yes. And the SEIU represents generally who? So, well, service employees. Yes. Currently, uh, SEIU represents approximately 2 million workers in different sectors, public and private sector. So in the public sector, it's like city and county employees, some graduate students, healthcare workers, and then um, janitors, security officers, airport workers and some stadium workers wow that's that's a lot of different types of workers so this is like across the nation yes and you said how many two million wow and so you're a union attorney you have been most of your career right yes and you work within the union correct and you represent the workers i represent the union and then through, through the union, the workers, sometimes I have represented individual workers in different cases. Have you? Mm-hmm. Really? Yes. But mostly you represent the union? Yes. How did you get into labor law, Monica? That's a good question. So my first job was as, as an immigration lawyer. Yes. With the law office of Enrique Revelo, past president of MABA. Oh, oh. <laughs> no, you already <laughs> didn't mention MABA. Good Lord. <laughs> All right. Okay. Yes. And Enrique Revalo, very well-known immigration attorney. Very, very well-known and very generous. Um, so I was working with him. My father, uh, his whole career working as a laborer was with a union, the Laborers International Union in North America, Local 300. And through the union, I got a scholarship for college. So I always knew, like, La Union, we always had to go to La Union to get things. He, we had health insurance. Yeah different things, benefits that we had because of the union. And so when I saw an advertisement for it, I was working at Enrique's office and I saw an advertisement for the law firm representing unions and I applied. First of all, what did your dad do? My dad was a laborer, so he worked for an asphalt company. 
and it was a unionized job. Yes. Which are becoming more and more scarce. Correct. And, okay, and then you were at, you were doing immigration law. I was doing immigration law. Which is what you did out of law school? Yes. And you saw, you, you knew, you had your, your, well, your whole life you experienced union, what union work meant, right? Yeah, I knew that I wanted to represent immigrants or workers, do something like that. Yeah. You knew that going to law school? Yes. I knew that in law school because of my, what my parents went through and what they experienced. Right. And so then you applied to a union firm. I did because immigration law was really depressing and stressful. And uh, it was hard to think about clients who didn't have relief. And it was emotionally really hard for me. Because at Enrique Arevalo's office, you were representing clients in their immigration cases. Right. What type, of, what type of clients? All kinds of clients? All kinds of clients, and I, but I was new, so when I was a new lawyer, I went to lots of detention facilities and representing lots of different clients, but in particular, for me, representing young men who were lawful permanent residents who had made mistakes and committed offenses. Everyone has their beliefs, but I believe that people deserve a second chance, and sometimes you make mistakes, and I thought it was terrible to have these young men who made mistakes and had paid their debt to society through the criminal justice system to be completely barred from being able to remain in the United States. And that was hard. Right. Okay, so even in that, there's just so much to, like, you know, un unpack. You're talking about legal permanent residents, so people who had their green cards. Yeah, so lots of times, you know, people come to this country, they had no idea. They they come here at young ages, two years old, and they were lawful permanent residents, and they had no clue that they weren't citizens. Right. And they just get in the wrong crowd, and they make mistakes, and sometimes those mistakes, depending on the offense, they, they're not able to remain in the country and are deported. Okay, well, that's, yeah, I can see how that's really heavy. And you were, you were trying to get, you were trying to help these individuals stay in the country and not get deported, obviously. I mean, that was a goal, but once you realize there was no relief, there's not much you could do for them. But even for clients and their families who there was the ability, who are in removal proceedings to try to keep them in the country, you always knew that there was a high likelihood that, you know. You were going to lose. You're, yeah, that yeah. you might not get granted and... It was really stressful, like not being able to sleep, thinking about your clients and their families and their children. And Yeah. Yeah, no, that's really heavy. I have my own experiences in the immigration system, not because I've ever been an immigration attorney, but for other reasons. But I think I think for now, let's put that a little bit on the side, because that's you're right. That is really hard. I mean, generally, the job of an attorney is to deal with people's problems. Right. And try to fix them. But in a scenario like that, you're talking about, you know, people losing their homes and having been being sent back to countries they often don't know anything about. Right. And being separated from their families, which I think is the hardest part. Right. Okay. Well, that's a, it's really heavy, Monica. Thank you for bringing us down so, so early in the episode. <laughs> I really appreciate it. <laughs> that's great. All right, everybody. Well, Debbie bye. Downer. I know. <laughs> All right, everybody, that's it for episode one. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, well, no, and, and, and I don't mean to make light of it because it is very serious, and I just think that for right now, let's put that a little bit on the side, and uh, maybe one day we can talk about that in more depth because the issues are, 
having to do with the American immigration system are so intense and so complicated and just, oh, anyway. All right, so you practiced immigration law. You were like, hell no, I'm out. And so you went to represent workers. Yes. You got the job you applied for. Yes. And, and is that, I mean, that's essentially, I mean, I know the answer to a lot of these questions, but essentially that's what you've been doing since then, representing workers. Correct. And yeah. labor unions. And labor unions. Mm-hmm. Um, did you ever go back? Well, and, and does that include, I mean, I, I know, again, I know the answer to this question, too. I know that you also deal with immigration issues. Yes. Still in representing workers, right? Yes. I have, after basically leaving immigration law and starting to practice union side labor law, the immigration issues were coming up in the workplace, and it just it just so happened that I had the immigration background, so I also kind of developed a niche expertise or experience on issues that impact immigrant workers and the intersection with labor labor law. Yeah, because the immigration issues come up all the time for workers, right? It's on the web. Oh, what was that? My watch is talking to us. <laughs> what did it say? Because I didn't really understand. It found something on the web, apparently. <laughs> Let me take it off. What, oh my God, what did it find? Maybe it found the immigration solution. <laughs> Siri's always listening. <laughs> Ooh, who's listening to us? Anyway, all right. So, and l- let me ask you about law school. Okay. Because that's where you and I met. Yes. What took you to law school? Why did you go to law school? I went to law school because in undergrad, I took a class with Professor Calavita was her name. At UC Irvine. Mm-hmm. It was a law and inequality class. And that was the first time that it, my eyes were sort of open to laws that are passed that are racist. And I, I wrote a paper on the immigration laws and the Chinese Exclusion Act. And that's sort of what interested me in law school. Had you not thought about it before that? No, I hadn't. I went to college thinking I was going to be a doctor. Really? Yes. Oh, see, I didn't know that. Yes, I was a bio major. Wow. I know. Well, that's pretty intense. <laughs> you know, people have to compare doctors and lawyers, and I'm like, well, yeah, that's very different. Doctors, you know, have to do a lot more than most <laughs> lawyers. Oh, see, so, and what happened in, in law school that changed your mind? I mean, I'm sorry, what happened in undergrad that changed your mind? I, I didn't do great in my hard science classes (laughs) and I knew I had to switch my major (laughs) if I was going to keep going yeah that's uh those chemistry and physics is that what we're talking about biochemistry yeah yeah those very intense it was intense yeah see I'm a liberal arts person from the beginning I never had any hopes that I could be a doctor plus I mean there is like no way I could ever be a doctor the sight of blood or anything gory I have to turn away I can't look at anything like that at all Ever. I remember when we were freshmen in college, we went on this tour because we were members of Chicanos for Creative Medicine at UC Irvine. Mm. We went on this tour of a medical school in San Francisco. And I remember being in one of the one of the labs and they were dissecting brains. Oh. And just the smell like formaldehyde. It was it was gross. Yeah. Kind of made me gag. I thought this is another sign that I can't do this. <laughs> what did you change your major to? Spanish. Spanish. And how did you... Well, let me ask you this, Monica, because I, again, I, I, it's, I know a lot of the answers to these questions, but we should 
I should ask you, like, where are you from? Well, and I don't mean that, like, in a gang way. <laughs> like Pico Nuevo versus Rivera Trece. No. I don't even know what you're talking about. I was born in L.A. I was born at the French hospital. It doesn't exist anymore. At the French hospital? Yes. Ooh, in, la, la. In L.A. And then my parents at the time had an apartment in East L.A. I don't think it was too far from here. One of my aunts lived nearby near where your mom lives and then my parents bought a home in Pico Rivera after Sonia was born oh really mm -hmm. so you spent your first years in East LA I did for real I was for real in East LA a lot of people try to claim East LA and then I'm like and then I you do a little diving and I'm like mm, you're not for me then I grew up in Pico did you go to school in East LA or did you move before then uh, I moved before then. Oh. I went to school in Pico Rivera, mm -hmm. Catholic school. Well, I started elementary school. I'm first grade in Pico Rivera, public school. And then you moved to Catholic school? Yes. And what grade did you move to Catholic school? First grade again, because I didn't pass first grade. Did you repeat first grade? Yes. Wow. I didn't speak English when I started school. I only spoke Spanish. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I did either. I mean, I, you know, my family is very Spanish-speaking, but you, but I was in East LA, so maybe it was a little bit more common for young kids not to speak English. So you went to, but you were in Catholic school. You repeated first grade in Catholic school. I started first grade over in Catholic school, yeah. And so, okay. And did you ever make that year up, or no? You just were year, were year, were you always a, a year older than the other students? Yes. Okay. All right, so then you grew up in Pico Rivera. You went to a Catholic school. You graduated from Catholic school, right? Mm -hmm. You went to... Heart of Mary and Montebello. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people... When I, that always struck me when I went to law school. And, you know, that's where we met, of course, at Loyola. And we were both part of La Raza um, Students Association. Is that what it was called? And I, it always struck me that so many of the other Latino students at Loyola in that time period had also gone to Catholic school. I think most of us did. Yeah, right? Mm -hmm. So there's something about Catholic schools that gets people to go to college? Well, I don't... I think if you were tracked in the right group of classes, yes. Was there also tracking in, in Catholic school? Yes. Like if you ask Mari Carmen... Yes. She wasn't in our, my same classes. Like, yeah. I had a group of friends in our classes, our honors. Yeah. And then they pushed us towards college. But then the girls who were not in honors courses, and they tracked you. Like, once you started, that's where you, they, you did placement exams. Right. They pretty much kept you in those tracks. And they steered them more towards, like, court reporting school, right. legal secretary school. Those types of trades where they would be nine month trades, one year trade. Right, right. Not not collegial or Yeah. No. And Mari Carmen, your friend Mari Carmen that you went to school with, wasn't tracked? No, she was not in the honor. She wasn't that's why that's how I know, it's because she'll tell me they never did like right. things that they did for us. Like for example, Sister Bernard, when we were gonna go to prom, she she made us learn how what a table setting is like and what to eat, how you eat. How, how a lady should eat at dinner so you know how to eat at prom. And, for example, Car Carmen will say, they didn't teach us that. Wait, so, like, the non-honor peoples could just eat however they wanted? Apparently. <laughs> they didn't have to be taught. They weren't taught the table setting. Civility. <laughs> they weren't taught how you eat, how you well, eat the, the piece of bread. That is so interesting <laughs> that this is what you're getting taught in Catholic school. I can assure you. Well, at least in the, you know, 80s and... Well, yeah. 
<laughs> Late 80s, that's what you were taught. Well, I went to public school. I'm a product of the LA Unified School District. And we also had tracking. We had the gifted and talented program, which I always thought like, well, I think now like, how are you going to call one group of students gifted and talented? <laughs> I'm sure you were in the gifted and talented always. Well, I was, yeah, I was from like pretty early on, you know? And yeah, so you get tracked, right? But let me ask you, how, how is it that you didn't get past first grade and then you got tracked? So I, you must have shined through. I, I, I don't know. I just remember, I remember first grade in public school and I didn't speak English. And I remember, the, I remember vividly this teacher yelling at me, are you stupid, Monica? Are you stupid? Because I couldn't, I couldn't respond. Oh, man, I couldn't speak. so terrible. And then when I went to Catholic school, I remember the teacher spoke Spanish, so I would just whisper in his ear what I needed or what I wanted. And then at some point I learned English. I don't know when. Wait a minute. So you, your first year, the one that you didn't repeat was in public school? Yes. Oh, I see. And then you got put into, Catholic, into, school. into Catholic school. Got it. I think it's because when they flunked me in first grade, my mom got mad. Yeah. And then she put me in Catholic school. Yeah. I'm sure, right? Well, that's good that your mom was like, you know, involved and yeah. got you into Catholic school. Although, you know... Catholic school has its issues too, right? Yeah, that could be a whole other podcast. That could be a whole other podcast. I agree. So we'll put that aside, the Catholic religion. All right, so you go to Catholic school, you graduate, that gets you to UC Irvine? Yep. As a bio major. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then at some point you're like, oh, I don't think so. And you decide to go to law school. But let's talk about the fact that we were both Latinas in law school from working class, immigrant backgrounds, you know, immigrant parents. And I think a lot of us back in La Raza were, were, of, that, mm -hmm. were of that type, right? Most yep. of us. And, well, at least the ones that congregated together. Yes. Which was always such a, like, source, like a source of, like, well, comfort for me, right? Because yeah. in law school is, was back then primarily white people, primarily wealthier people, and so to be able to find a group of students who came from similar backgrounds was always really helpful and comforting. What was it like for you to be a Latina in law school in the 90s? I think for me, personally, I was always sort of caught up in my own head about not being good enough mm -hmm. um, uh, and feeling less than my classmates mm -hmm. in every class even I mean in retrospect I shouldn't have felt that way and I should have just done my best but I think that I I purposely sort of put myself down and then it was hard right because there was definitely people who behaved as though you should not be there and I think to that guy, remember that guy that used to share the office with us in La Raza from the Federalist Society? It was a Federalist Society, right? It was the Criminal Law Society. Oh, was he the Criminal Law? I could have sworn he was a Federalist. Yeah, at some point, Loyola <laughs> made La Raza share an office with the Criminal Law Society. We were like, oh, why the Criminal Law Society? Why? What are you trying to tell us? <laughs> I swear he's a Federalist. <laughs> well, he might have been a Federalist as well, but I remember him being like the president of the Criminal, criminal law. law Society. Do you remember what he did? I, I, I remember him doing something, but I, I, know, I know he just always looked at us like we did not belong there. He was so angry. He was disgusted by us, but I don't remember exactly what he did. Well, because we, we had that office, right? We had just like this little, it's a little office where we had like a couch and two desks. 
And we had had that office for this because this was in my third year when they they started making a share. And we had had well, so we had had the office at least for two years before that. And then I think before that, even I mean, my understanding was that it had always been La Raza office, you know. So at some point, they they brought in the Criminal Law Society and. One of the things that he did was put up a huge American flag. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, remember he that. put up an American flag in the office. And we were like, wow, what, you know, what, you know. I mean, the Criminal Law Society, I don't know what its membership was like, but it wasn't as, I mean, it wasn't as, I don't know, I, I'm sure it didn't have as many members as, as La Raza. And, you know, it's not, it's not like the Criminal Law Society all congregated together <laughs> and met in the, in the, in the office, right? For that office for La Raza was our landing place. Like right. we would go there when we got to school, leave our stuff there when we went to class, came come back for lunch. You know, that's where we all landed throughout right. the day, right? So, you know, it, that office belonged to us in many ways. So I think when he saw that <laughs> there were so many of us, well, anyway, he put up that American flag, and we were like, oh my god, you know, like. So then, because we were not just gonna be like. Okay, we put up that very famous poster. Yes. Of and I, I'm not gonna remember the artist, but she recently passed away. The art, it's the the sort of Aztec guy who's pointing his finger and and says, "Who's the illegal alien yeah. pilgrim?" I remember that. Yeah, <laughs> we put that up. <laughs> so totally passive aggressive move, but I thought you know point, poignant, poignant. Yeah. And it that, was like touche. Yeah, I was like, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> You're trying to get us? But then the other thing he would do that was really kind of scary is that he would leave, like, gun magazines on on the desk. That was, maybe that that's why I thought he was the Federalist Society. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yeah, he would leave, like, gun and ammunition de- magazines on his desk. And we were all just like... And it was just... I don't even remember any, but any other member of the Criminal Law Society. I only remember that one. <laughs> I was just remember that this one, one guy. This one guy. I don't know that anybody else ever went in there, but I mean, kudos to him because we were like, <laughs> we were a force in that office. I think for me, being part of La Raza and there being such a, I, I mean, I think Loyola is pretty diverse, so there was a big group of us. Yeah. So I think that that helped. Yeah. Being a Latina in law school would help to have, like, the group that we had. Yeah, could you imagine if we didn't? No. Yeah. I, I don't think I'd be able to survive it. Yeah, I agree. I don't. I mean, it would have just been a totally different experience. I remember Lo- Loyola really fondly. Because even my first year when I was there, my first year, I remember, one of the things I remember about that year was that uh, Victor Nieblas, who is also a really well-known immigration attorney, he was a third year, and he was president of La Raza. He was advocating for the cafeteria workers in terms of their contract with the school. And he would hold meetings with the school and with the cafeteria workers to sort of like be a part of that process. And so I went into law school, that was my first year, and I was just like, wow, this is like super impressive that, you know, Victor's doing this, that La Raza's doing this, that it isn't just about, you know, studying and becoming lawyers, there's this like trying to have a bigger impact. So that was like my first year. So from the get-go, I knew that there were people in the school who cared more about just, you know, their grades and and becoming a lawyer or becoming rich, or there were people who were really committed to helping others and were, you know, on a plan to dedicate their careers to that. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that from that 
group of, of um, students at Loyola at that time, there's like all kinds of really prominent attorneys who are really out there making a difference and impacting people's lives. It's true. Um, all right, so you went to law school, you graduated, yay, class of 98, and then you practiced immigration law. Let's talk about practicing law for us, okay. what it's been like for you. Practicing law is rough. <laughs> it is, right? Yes. It's hard. It's really hard. What's been the hardest thing about practicing law? I think, well, in terms of the work, I think it's the workload. It's I, the workload, isn't it? I think in order to do it and to do it well, yeah. and to serve your client and to do a good job, yeah. it just requires a lot of time. Yeah. So it's not an it's not a nine to five job. No, it's not a Monday to Friday job. No, you're kind of on the job all Always. the time. Yeah. Yes. Especially when you first graduate from law school, right? Yes. Those are like some intense years when you don't know anything. Right. Because law school prepares you for a lot of things, but it doesn't prepare you for practicing law. No. So yeah, so the workload is rough, and I know. I mean, obviously, I know that you have a family. You have two two girls, two daughters. I don't. I'm not married. I mean, I, you are I'm married. married. <laughs> I am married. I didn't forget that. I don't have kids. Uh, and so, you know, I get to focus a lot of my time on my job. But how do you balance that out with your kids and stuff? Even your husband, right? Like, I know your husband's a lawyer, too, but. I think it's hard. Something always gives at one point. Yeah. So if I'm really focusing, putting a lot of time at work, then something else is going to give at home. I think, for example, my oldest, her first two years of life, I probably didn't spend very much time with her when I went back to work. But I was fortunate that I had my mom still. Yeah. So my mom helped me a lot with both of my daughters. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, there were plenty of things that I missed. And I think my husband's job, for whatever reason, and the role that he has that is firm, he was able to... And because I guess the type of work that he does... I think he was able to have more flexibility yeah. to like pick up girls or pick them up or go to school events. But there was lots that I missed. But do you think I, I, I'm asking you this? I don't I don't mean it in a snarky way. Do you think it's important that you have to be at everything? I think it depends on what you want. Yeah. And so I think that for much of their childhood, mm-hmm. I did not think it was important for me to be at everything. I figured, well, as long as one of us is there. It doesn't really matter, and I've got, I'm working, so. And looking back, do you feel differently? Yes. You do? I do. You feel like you should have been at more stuff? I definitely felt that when my oldest was getting ready to graduate high school. Yeah. Actually, yeah, I, I, when she was leaving eighth grade to start high school, and then once she was graduating high school to go to college, I realized that I should have been at more things. But it's also because, you know, I lost my mom, and then I recently lost my dad, and so I... I it I have now a different point of view. Like I realize that family and friendships are precious, mm-hmm. and we only have so many years left. And so, yeah, I do regret not being at some things because maybe I don't think it's that important. But my child remembers that I wasn't there. Really? Yeah, on some things, but you know, it also impacts your relationship. So, uh, well, that's that's. Whereas my oldest has a really close relationship with father which is great yeah but it's also i think 
one of the reasons because I was kind of not around. So I was working a lot. Yeah. Well, that's a really, really hard. That's really hard. I mean, there's nothing you can do about it no. now, right? Because I often think, like, I think that's so important to teach young children or children, like, a strong work ethic, you know, and that life isn't just about celebrations and, you know, always getting sort of what you, you know what I mean? Like, always well, getting Well, yeah, away. my parents didn't go to anything. <laughs> I know. So I'm just thinking about my mom, like... Yeah, like, we didn't grow up like that, no. right? We didn't grow up with that kind of, like, support, I guess, or, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even I used... if you wanted to do something, like, I want to play basketball or softball. Está loca. <laughs> Ponte a lavar los trastes, like. Yeah, and it's, you know, and you still loved your mom and yeah, had a wonderful relationship with her. I think that because I just I just think that women can often be so hard on themselves in terms of like motherhood and jobs and career. And I think there is something to be said about a woman who works and teaches that to their child, you know, Mm -hmm. because unless you're extremely wealthy, your child is probably going to have to work at some point. Right. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so I don't know. I come from a different like. I'm not saying different from you. I'm saying different from now. Like, I know now it's like work shouldn't be everything you do or it shouldn't, like, you know, you shouldn't focus on work. But I come from a family that has a really strong work ethic. And so my perspective on things are just slightly different than what they tend to be now, you know? Well, I can see that, of course, you know, work shouldn't be everything and it shouldn't be the most important thing. I do think it's up there, you know? Well, because you have... I sort of feel like you said, be, because of the type of work that you do, especially when you're litigating, you can't just say, oh, I need a mental health day if you have a deadline. Or well, you no, you a, can't. Or you have a depot or you have an MSJ due or you're in trial. Like, though, it just doesn't work that way. Of course, there's emergencies, but. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's not that type of job. It's not that type of job where you can, you can just kind of like blow it off. On any, I mean, you. There are days where you can blow it off, but you have to. You have to consider your schedule and what you have your deadlines, right? Yeah, that is probably the hardest part about, at least for me, practicing law, because it's, it's this responsibility you have to your client, to yourself, to your career, to your reputation. I mean, to your license, right? Because if you screw up a deadline or you screw up a case bad enough, you could get disbarred. You yeah. could get disbarred. Mm-hmm. So there is this kind of like heavy responsibility. But for me, again, I don't have kids, so it's easy for me to be like, you know, I can spend whatever time I want at work. For me, like, I, you know, I think the work that I do is meaningful, so dedicating time to it means something to me, too, you know, so it's not like I'm just dedicating my time to something that doesn't matter to me. No, I, I mean, I agree. Yeah, I mean, because you're doing important work, too. Now, if I was, like, doing work that I didn't think was meaningful, yeah, I could see how having to work weekends and evenings would be really, really tough, you know, especially if I'm missing stuff from my family. All I'm saying is you're contributing to society, and in that way, you're contributing to your children because you're making it a better world. Yes, I think so. <laughs> That's what I tell myself when I have to work on Sundays. 
Well, I think for me, it's always, I, I always keep in mind and I'm mindful that I know that there are workers who pay my salary. Mm, right. And there are work, everything that I do depends on improving the lives of workers. Yeah. And so for me, it's not, I'm not in a situation where I'm, re, you know, I'm, I'm not happy about having to work. It's almost like I, I want to do it because I know why I'm doing it. Yeah, when I when I first went out on my own, I you know we I needed to take cases that I wasn't really an expert in. I took a divorce case, and yeah, I mean that was hard for me because I couldn't find meaning in like you know getting somebody divorced, and some of the issues that were being like fought over, you know, like just stuff that was so petty and so in my estimation not for them but in my estimation was so petty and I just thought I can't like I can't do this I can't dedicate my whole day to this even if it brings money into the office or you know I I, if I have to do this all the time I'm not gonna make it I'm just not gonna like give it my all or want to do it so I definitely think it's important that you choose a job well, it is for for me anyway to choose a job that you care about. Oh yeah, and that you enjoy doing, and that yeah yeah. Then you have yeah, because if you're gonna dedicate so much time, like sometimes I think about defense attorneys, and like and, and you know attorneys who are defending employers in in the cases that I have, and and you know not always because some cases are more righteous than others, right? But in some of the cases where I have, where I'm pretty clear we're right about it, and my client really got screwed over. But the defense attorney still has to like do his job or do her job. You know, I feel like, oof, I am glad I'm not on that side, you know? <laughs> and then the ones who are like assholes about it or vicious about it, I'm just like, oof, like how do you sleep at night, you know? You've done a lot in your years as an attorney. What are you most proud of? <sighs> That's a hard question. Like, I'm just, uh, I just feel, I don't know that I'm proud, but I just feel lucky. I feel like I'm lucky that I get to do good work and that I've been given opportunities to do work that I never would have imagined doing. Like? Like policy work. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I really like it. I like policy work, the state and federal policy work I've done. And even when the state has been sued over... (laughs) legislation that we worked on the trump administration sued the state of california over one of the bills that we worked on and being able to help submit amicus briefs supporting our bill defending it i thought that was i think that was cool i enjoyed doing that i think though before i came in house getting people's jobs back was like the best feeling i think yeah yeah that's probably the best feeling I have. I and I, you know, I had it a lot. I mean, I got people's jobs back a lot. That is so amazing because that is a remedy that again you have within the union system, right? It is not a remedy that you have not generally when you're filing a civil lawsuit, right? Outside, you know, of your union protections. And I generally tell my clients, you know, I can't get your job back. What I can't and I can't put you back to where you were before this terrible thing happened. What I can get for you is compens- monetary compensation for what you've gone through, which is, you know, important too as well. But, you know, so that's all people want is they just want to work, you know, they just want to do their job and 
Well, they want to be heard and they want someone to believe them and be on their side. And no, and yeah. I think for me, having worker, I think having workers say to me, I'm so thankful. Thank you for doing this. You know, thank you for listening to me. Thank you for yeah, getting my job back. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the best feelings. Do you miss it? I, I feel like the work that I do now uh, in-house, while it's removed from sort of the day-to-day representation, litigation, arbitration, I think it's, it's, it's impactful at a different level. Yeah, bigger level. Yes. Yeah. And so I think being a part of that is also exciting and inspiring. And I've been, you know, practicing 20 years, so I was a little tired of litigating. I don't know how you do it. Well, it's all I've done. So you've had a much more varied career than I have, because I, all I've done since graduating is litigate. I've all that you know. The firms that I've worked at have all been litigation firms, and that's what I've done. I've sued employers and cities, and you know, agencies. It is. It takes. That definitely takes its toll. It does get better as you get older because you know what you're doing, right? So, what used to take me a long time to do it doesn't take me as long but yeah it's a lot the deadlines are a lot the deadlines are the deadline well so what I you know it's a (laughs) it's a lot of pressure you know especially because I'm on my own so it's not like I have a whole lot of people to share the work I don't have anybody to share the work with but I have to do the work by myself so I have to from the get-go decide what's a good case whether or not to take the case and then I have to build the case you know right from from well from ground zero I have to build the case to get it to either settle or to go to trial and hopefully win and so that means yeah it means a lot of work I have to figure out the evidence what's out there what's hurting us what's helping us I have to construct the case right yeah it's very stressful isn't it it is but I don't want to be Debbie Downer on your podcast (laughs) let's just talk about how terrible it is to be an attorney (laughs) no it has its downfalls for sure but i will agree with you though when you win something like when you win when you when when i'm in a deposition and i'm taking the deposition of a witness or you know the harasser or the person who made the decision to terminate my client or I'm taking the position the position of a human resources person who didn't do the investigation he or she was supposed to do and I have their backs against their corner because you know I'm, I'm pointing out something that was clearly not done properly right I mean yeah there's a lot of satisfaction in that what would you do differently in terms of what in terms of your career Is there anything you would do differently? Is there any, yeah, like, is there anything that you look back and you think, well, I'm sure, of course, there are things that we look back and are like, well, I probably shouldn't have done that. But in terms of the span of your career, is there something that you would do differently? Anything that stands out for you? I don't, you know, I'm not really one of, I really wish I were more of a, calculated planner type of person who like knows you know there's some people that you meet who know their ultimate goal is to be a judge Mm -hmm. or sit on the california court of appeal or what have you Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. being a particular that's never I've never been that type of person where I'm not I'm not plotting it out yeah it just sort of like happened oh I saw this job announcement oh I know that let me try to work at this place or I get recruited for the next position yeah. that I'm at I don't know would that I would wa- would you have wanted to be more calculating no no I don't think so because I I'm I'm I feel really I don't know I feel really lucky to be where I am now in the job that I have you it's not really luck though you know that right I mean it's some luck but it's not entirely luck you have the job that you have now because well because I've worked yeah yeah I've done work I mean I'm not it's not to say that luck doesn't exist of course it does but you 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 know you've earned most of what you've gotten Yes. Well, what would I do differently? I don't know. Maybe ask for help more? Yeah. Maybe. About anything in particular or? I just think as it's kind of like with the outline thing in law school. Mm-hmm. Like you, this idea of like, I just have to do it. I have to do all this work. And not asking for help more. Delegating more maybe? Maybe delegating more. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Which I'm learning more to do now. Are you? Mm-hmm. I don't have anybody to delegate to. Yeah, that's true. But I do have that sort of like I can just do this myself. Right. You know, and it's gonna be it's gonna be faster and just easier for me just to knock it out because I do have an assistant, right? And there are probably things that I still do now that I should give to my assistant, and I'm trying to be better about that, but it's hard. But I do remember even when I had an associate who worked for me, it was just sometimes easier just to do the work myself. You know, I didn't want to have to explain it. I didn't want to have to meet. I didn't want to have to answer all the questions. And review. I mean, it's hard. And review and edit. It's Editing hard. Editing is hard. It's hard to it's hard to train and supervise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's hard. It's very hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I think even in the best scenario, right, when you have a really receptive and really good employee, it's still hard. But when you don't, it gets even harder. Yeah. yeah. So maybe maybe I would take more time to be to delegate more and be a better supervisor and train train people. I don't think I did enough of that. The way people perceive us is a lot different when you're a woman, when you're a woman of color. So that the way I treat somebody, well, I'm a pretty straightforward person, so I'm going to tell you generally how I feel about something. And I'm probably not going to sugarcoat it. Or you're going to know if I'm upset about something, even because I'm super passive aggressive, and I'm probably just going to not talk to you <laughs> the way my mom used to give me the silent <laughs> treatment. And I'm probably going to like give you dirty looks, which I'm not telling you is productive in any way. I'm just telling you it does get across how I feel. So, but I think, I think that often my reputation is that I'm a bitch, you know? And I think that if, it, if I was a man, maybe I'm just kidding myself. And if I was a man, people would think I'm an asshole. But I think that the perception of me is a little skewed because I'm a woman and I'm not expected to be tough or straightforward or you know what I mean I think so yes yeah Yeah. so we come off differently because we're women I I think so yeah that sucks and you know but we were raised by really strong women oh my god 
Yes. Hashtag Socorro. <laughs> Hashtag Socorro. Check, her, Check out. her out. Dude, my mom is tough, and I know your mom was tough, my too. My mom was really tough. And so I think that it's it's also, right, as you, yeah. as in our 50-plus years of life, we realize now that who we are and how we behave and what our expectations of people is because that's how we were raised <laughs> by these really strong Mexican women who who were just, I don't know, my mom was very demanding, my mom was very hardworking, and she expected things a certain way, and it and there was no sweetness. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about, it's like you're talking about my mom. You know, my mom, my mom is still alive, and I, you know, I've mentioned before, she's 90, 92, she's gonna be, no, she's gonna be 92 in October, and, yeah, she's, she's tough. <laughs> Well, we can never do anything right. It doesn't matter never. I mean, how old you are, how long you've been tough. doing it. When I used to like spend my weekends at her house taking care of her, just to relieve my older sister, my God, she was so demanding over the silliest things, you know? And I was just like, I wanted, I, <laughs> I mean, I, sometimes I lashed out because I was like, lady, you're lucky I'm here. <laughs> like, yeah, really tough. And no sweetness. My no mom sweetness. is not sweet. My mom was not sweet. My mom was not either. And so I think, like, in many ways, I, I realize now, in many ways, I'm like her. And especially with work, it's like I behave I think, yeah. the way she was. And so <laughs> you I know, want it done, and I want it done a certain way, and I'm demanding, and then I get upset, and then there's a lot going on. And yeah, it's a little you cycle. You know, that's a really good point that I hadn't known that I've really thought about that. Because I don't, I mean, I'm not like my mom in a lot of ways, but I'm not, in some ways I'm not, you know, but I do, I should, you know, that definitely takes into, con- that definitely puts for me like, oh yeah, because I, I do, I want things done a certain way. I want them done when I need them to be done and I right. want people to like move when right. I tell me them too. to move, you know. I'm the same way. Why Have you done what I said as yeah. you do? <laughs> and I hate when I have to like go back and follow up or like, you know. So in that sense, it's like I'm talking about my mom as I say those things. But that's also why I don't, <laughs> I don't have any attorneys that work for me, you know, because it just it's too hard. It, I don't want to be like that, you know. I don't want to be stressed out about what somebody else is doing. I just do it myself. Right. And I think that's that's how I used to be. Yeah. But now you're changing because you got training. Yes, (laughs) you got training. No, that's good. I mean, here. Let me ask you another question that I wanted to touch upon. And I know we're, you know, we've covered a lot of things, but I wanted to touch upon this because, as you just kindly reminded me, we are in our fifties now. And when we started practicing law, twenty-five years. Well, for me, twenty-five years, or maybe yeah, twenty-five years. You know, obviously, we weren't in our fifties. What 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 has that been like for you, though? That transitioning into like. (laughs) <laughs> an older attorney an older woman yeah an in, old, in, no. the, in the in the next half of her life I what mean, do you mean i mean how has that has it affected your practice or your career or like your your approach to your career your i mean is it different i mean obviously it's different but in what way is it different now that you're older i think it's different first of all i've i've been through so I mean, I've, I've, I've practiced for a long time. Mm-hmm. I've been through so many things. I've handled so many different types of cases. I've been in so many situations where I thought the world was going to end. The sky was going to fall. Yeah. I think I'm to the point, even when something's bad, 
that I know like it's all going to work out. It's all going to be okay. You know, we'll fix it. We'll call. We'll get it done. We'll mm-hmm. do whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many notices of errata I filed and blame myself for everything, even if it wasn't my fault. Yeah. Like, I just know, like, it'll... It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Yeah. And even if if it's bad... Yeah, I mean, even it, yeah. if whatever it is is bad, it's still going to be it's okay still in the gonna end. It's still going to be okay, yeah. Like, somehow it's going to solve itself, or even if it doesn't solve itself, like, you know, people make mistakes. Yep. Yeah. The sun will rise tomorrow. Oh, the sun will always rise tomorrow, whether you're there or not, <laughs> right, you know? Right. <laughs> so I think that's the first thing that yeah. I've learned to try, and, I, and I've, I realize that I do that more, that I do that more, like, with others if someone says, oh, my gosh, this is happening it's going to be okay. Yeah. It's all going to work out. Yeah. It's all going to be all right. Yeah. Let's just fix do you, it. And do you have to tell yourself that too? Like, yes. Yeah, right? Yes. Yeah, I do too. Like where I'm like, oh shit, I should have done this. And I think, well, I didn't. I can't change it. So I have to like figure out right. how to solve that or right. how to get past it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what do you do for fun? Oh, gosh. Oh, my God. That's not even a hard question, Monica. (laughs) It is a hard question. It should not be a hard question. Okay, well, let's see. What do I like to do for fun at this age? I like to to watch movies. Really? You still like to watch movies? Yes. Like real movies? Like movies? Like go to the movie theater? Oh, my God. That is so 1998. It is. I love the movies. Do you get popcorn? And I love popcorn. I love popcorn. All right. So you like to go to the... What's the last movie you saw? In the movie theater, that one movie about everything, everything at once. <laughs> I don't know what it's called. <laughs> Something about everything here and now and at once. With, you know what I'm talking about? I can't, vaguely. Who is in it? It's this Asian woman. Oh, yeah. I think I know what you're talking about. You know what I'm talking about, right? I do. Everything. Yeah. Well, you know what I'm saying. Every Everything, everywhere, all at once. Was it good? It was good. Was, I think that was the last movie I saw. Was the popcorn good? Popcorn was good. I think. You know what? I might have seen something else, but... <laughs> is there like a Marvel movie? Oh, oh no. I, I don't watch those movies. Oh, I think I saw Thor, Love and Thunder or something. Oh, God. Really? That's what it was. You, I mean, did you go see that because your husband likes those movies or your kids? Or did you go like you were happy to go see that movie? I was super happy to go see it <laughs> because I freaking love... What's his name? Hemsworth. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yes. I love I, Chris Hemsworth. I like his brother. Liam? From... Liam Hemsworth? Hunger Games? Yes. Yeah. Both Hemsworths. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So I mean... I'm not going to... I'll take either way. Yeah, exactly. That's so crazy that you still go... I don't know that... I don't even remember the last movie that I saw at the movies. And I've been on lots of planes, so I watch lots of movies on planes. I do watch movies on planes, too. I saw... Did you see a Nicolas Cage one? <laughs> Magnificent. I mean, called? I'm totally not judging you for Magnificence. watching. Magnificence. <laughs> what is it called? I mean, you've always had a really highbrow taste in movies. So, I'm really surprised you are happy about a Nicolas Cage movie. You should see that movie. I'm not judging you. I'm not. <laughs> at all. <laughs> it's, called, um, it's called The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Okay, well, that sounds interesting. <laughs> Good. Like, was it a cheesy movie? Like, with him attacking people and fighting? Like, he plays himself. Really? Yes. Okay, that sounds intriguing. It's good. And But do I have to go to the movies to watch that? No. Oh, it's streaming somewhere? I think so. All right, well. It was good. Send me a memo. I'll send you a text. <laughs> Mind you. It's 
move on to a topic of expertise for me. Tacos. Tacos. <laughs> I would say your mom was a really good cook. My mom was an excellent cook. Yeah. Your mom was such a good cook. She was. My brother cooks good, too. You know, my nephew cooks really, really, really. He's a good cook. Eric. Eric, yeah. I think yeah. He, he, doesn't he work as a chef or in a kitchen? Or yes. A, yeah. Yep. yep. My mom made good tacos. She made a lot of really good stuff, right? Yeah. I'm trying to remember, like, she made really good birria. That birria was so good. Yeah. I know. I know, yeah. So, tacos. Tacos. What are your three favorite tacos, either types or places? Well, that's so those It's are hard to find places, but you, I'll, I'll say, I guess my first favorite taco was, was the tacos dorados my mom made. Mm. So I still make those. Tacos dorados de... Carne. De cebrada? Mm-hmm. Carne de res? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love a good taco. The, I love a good fried taco with carne de cebrada. With jack cheese and yeah. salsa. Yeah, and lettuce, mm-hmm. iceberg lettuce. Yes. And maybe... Tom- well, I like tomatoes. You don't. I don't like tomatoes, but maybe some sour cream. Yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> Guacamole. Guacamole with no tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I agree. And you make those? I'll make those, yeah. Your other top is that your number one? That's my number one. I would say number two, carne asada. Yes. But well, you have to tell me where there's better places besides home and King Taco. Well, I'm, I, and you're not the first person to mention King Taco. Well, actually, you are the first well, person. Well, I think because King Taco's close. Well, I love King Taco, don't get me wrong. I'm not the biggest fan of their carne asada tacos. Mm. Their al pastor tacos are the ones that do it for me. And I will literally go to my grave saying that King Taco has the best red salsa. salsa. The red salsa is for me, like, I just love that, that salsa. But, yeah, the carne asada, I mean, you can't go wrong. Well, you can't go wrong with the carne asada taco, but it's, you know, when it's good, it's really, really good. Yeah. Okay, so carne asada. That's number two. That's number two. Hmm. And then the third. I don't know. Don't look at me. <sighs> I'm tied. I'm torn between pork. Carnitas. Carnitas, or potato. So I'm gonna go carnitas though. Yeah. And do you have a place for that, or are you just no. generally like carnitas? Tacos? I just like carnitas tacos. Do I don't have a place. Uh, where can I get carnitas near me? Northgate is where I get carnitas. Well, shoot, Northgate has good food, man. Yeah, that's Northgate where I get carnitas. Northgate has a pan de muerto mm-hmm. that's coming up soon. Yes. Because it's seasonal and it's really is delicious. It good? It's mm-hmm. really, really delicious. I'm have to try it. No, you're not because you don't eat bread. I do eat bread. I love bread. Sergio's Tacos right here in Montebello has really good carnitas. Oh, really? Mm hmm. Mm. Recommended by Jonathan Gold. Okay, I gotta try it. Yeah, I love carnitas too, but they have to be good because a lot of places they're dry. Yes, you want them juicy. Yeah, mm-hmm. like nice and oily. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the oil drips out when you take bite. When you bite, <laughs> and then a taco de papa, you know, that's not my thing. But I mean, I wouldn't say no to a taco de papa. Do you I make, like them. Do you make a, you make tacos de papa? I have, but I don't think I'm good at. I'm good at it. Put a lot of salt and pepper in the papas. <laughs> <laughs> I love food. Me too. I love tacos. All right, so we've got tacos de carne de cebrada. Have you ever been to Boulevard Cafe? 
Where's Boulevard Cafe? Boulevard Cafe is on is in East LA on Whittier Boulevard, pretty close to my mom's, Arizona. Those are my tacos. And Boulevard Cafe. Those are good. Those look good. Boulevard Cafe. It's it's a hole in the wall. It's old school, and it's on Whittier Boulevard on McBride. And they have really, really excellent carne, tacos de carne de cebrada. Mm. Final question for you. Tacos, Boulevard Cafe. Yes? What would you say, what would you tell somebody who's just starting the practice of law are the keys to success? The keys to success are to work hard. Yes. I mean, and everything that comes with that, obviously, sticking to your deadlines and knowing the law and all of that. Being on time. Yeah, being Mm -hmm. on time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Communicate with your clients. Yes. Oh, isn't that critical? Yes. And sometimes you put it off, but it's like there's no need. No. Because all they want to do is hear your voice. Yes. Communicate with your clients. What else? Fall through. Mm-hmm. with what you have to do what you say you're going to do mm, and if you don't do it or if you can't get to it say that you can't or it's or, true, or right? I, I mean because we all get very I mean the workload is heavy and then things come in that you don't expect and then then there's life so I think it's like or when you realize oh shoot I didn't do this then let that person know hey I didn't get to this for this reason but I'm getting to it I think communication right? yeah communication because I, I agree I think it's so easy to be like oh I don't want to deal with that I don't want to like I'm just gonna avoid this person or I'm just like not gonna take the call not gonna answer the email when the easiest thing is to say is just to answer the email talk to the person and just say I don't have it yet I haven't done it I'm gonna get to it this is why right. yeah well, that's a really learned skill, though, because I have to talk myself to it. Right. You know? Yep. I have to, like, just answer, you know? I even have to make the list, like, put it down. Because you're working on many things when things are coming in at you, whether it's in a text message yeah. or an email or a phone call or a voicemail. However, you're getting the... It's like writing it down and say, get back to so-and-so, yep. you know? Yeah. Uh, I would say build relationships with people. Yeah? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? I think uh, it means uh, either through your job at your job or other lawyers in your community, Mm -hmm. in your field, or ethnic bar associations. I think, like, find your people, build relationships so that they're there to, that you can turn to for help. Yeah. When you have questions or you're feeling down or you don't know how to do something. Or even just to vamp. Yeah. 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 I think it's crucial. Yeah. I agree. You have to find... It doesn't have to be a lot of people. But you do have to find your people. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit of like what we started talking about with in terms of Leola. Like, we weren't all really close or we weren't all like the best of friends, but we were all each other's people. Right. And we all had that. Yeah. And then, Bill, you you need to have that. Because it... well, at least for me, it can be really super isolating, isolated. If you're like a solo practitioner, uh, I mean, I can go a long time without talking to anybody, you know, like right. about what's going on in my job or, you know, 
my practice. But you you do you still do need to bounce ideas off of people. Mm-hmm. I think you need to vent. You need to talk things out. Maybe that's why I started this podcast. Brainstorm. Yeah, brainstorm. Or even like when you screw up, just be like, oh shit, I screwed up, you know. Right. And just get it off your chest too. Right. Yeah, that's really important. So communication and build relationships. Relationships. Yeah. I think those are really important. But they're learned skills because not everybody has them. No. Yeah. It's not easy. It's not. And, and by communication, I also mean like admit when you're Oof. made a mistake. And, yeah. You know? I'm, yeah, I'm totally with you because, that, you, you know, once you say, I fucked up, I'm sorry, I mean, what more can somebody tell you? You know, like. Mm-hmm. If you just say, I did it, but if you just try to make excuses or you try to get around admitting that you made a mistake, kind of just digging yourself deeper into a hole, you know? Right. I agree with all of those things. I feel like, I don't know if it's just our profession, that people are driven sometimes more by their egos than, than, than like, what matters in terms of, like... Than right or wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think it, yeah... Well, I mean, I don't know about other professions, but definitely the, the, the lawyers are very often ego-maniacs. <laughs> <laughs> no names will be mentioned. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, there's something about people who want to be lawyers, and there's something about the practice of law, you know. Like, often lawyers are put on pedestals. They're kind of seen as these... I don't know, like really, I mean, kind of seem like doctors, right, in that same kind of level. Right. It's easy to believe the hype if you let it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, I definitely think you're right on that. Humbleness and hum- humility are important. Yes, I yeah. agree. Yeah. All right, well, is there anything else you would like to add that I haven't asked you about or touched upon? I. I think we talked about a lot of stuff. <laughs> we did talk about a lot of stuff, and I'm sure at some point you'll probably, if this podcast continues, hopefully it does. Oh, uh, yeah, hello. <laughs> you'll come back. We'll talk about immigration, although that's really painful. And we'll talk about other stuff. Yeah. Maybe one day we'll talk about what it's like to practice law in your 60s. <laughs> Uh, maybe we will. <laughs> I ain't retiring soon. I'm not either. I'm not with two kids in college soon. I don't even have that, and I don't think I'm going to be retiring soon. All right. Well, thank you very much, Monica. Thank you for having me. This was fun. I hope it was fun, and I'm sure at some point you'll come back and we'll talk more. But for now, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Now, if you enjoyed today's podcast and you're thinking, hey, I think I need to speak to a lawyer, you should get in touch with me. You can do that by going to scmlawoffices.com and sending me a message there. If you're not ready to do that, definitely say hi anyway. You can connect with me on Twitter at sem underscore in underscore ELA. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you on the next episode.